Just ask him to keep them safe. I think it's common sense. Make a sacrifice and put on a mask. We're not taking your mask away. We want to take masks off our children. Battle over school mask mandates. It continues to blow my mind with the backlash that we're getting from Tallahassee. We believe this is a decision for the parent. The state threatens funding. The president offers to replace it. It's heartbreaking because they lost a piece of their family. As Broward schools lose three educators to COVID. Their numbers are horrible. Broward leads the nation in hospital admissions. Miami Dade close behind. Um, the folks who are unvaccinated continue to fill the hospitals. Pandemic and school mask policy dominate South Florida News live this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg, and as we come on the air today, the masks are on, but gloves are off as the Broward School District defies state rules on mandatory masking. And so the mask mandate will be in place when classes start on Wednesday, risking threats of financial sanctions. The district points to record hospital admissions in Broward, including a rising number of pediatric cases, plus this week, the deaths of three Broward teachers from COVID. The school board chair and superintendent formally notified the Florida Department of Education in a letter on Friday. It is a standoff watched around the country with the president on the phone on Friday night. Broward's new superintendent, Dr. Vicki Cartwright, got that president's call of support. And she is with us today along with board chair, Dr. Rosalind Osgood, who drew the line in the sand this week. Great to have you both with us today. Good morning, great to see you, great to meet you, Dr. Cartwright. First of all, tell us about the uh, phone call from the president Friday night. What did he tell you? Most certainly, first and foremost, thank you very much for having us here this morning. Uh, for the call that we received on Friday was one of comfort, um, genuinity of, uh, of support and concern. Um, so he, express the gratitude for the leadership that our board has taken on this and for the support of, of district leadership in supporting that decision um, and doing what, what we believe is in the best interest for our students here locally in Broward County. Dr. Osgood, that letter also came with an offer of support for federal dollars to supplant whatever the state might use as a consequence taking back uh, some financial support from the state. It, it's gotten to be a real back and forth this week and uh, ugly at times and, and quite diplomatic at times, as was your response to the Department of Education, Florida Department of Education, when you essentially said, uh, here's our response to your investigation. We're holding the line. We're going to do masking. Here's our case. Tell our viewers in a couple of lines, restate that case and your reasons for deciding not to comply. Well, we believe that the lives of our student and staff are invaluable. We also believe that there is a local parentis rights in which teachers are responsible for the health and safety of children when they are in their custody in school and in their preview. And we're just not willing to risk the lives of our students. Eight out of nine of us voted to mandate masks. We are holding fast. We will not put our students and our staff in jeopardy. We will listen at the outpour of our community who wants us to mandate masks. And we will do everything that we can to put the lives of our student and staff, the people that we love first. And you in that letter actually 
told the department you are in compliance because there is an opt-out clause in the mandate with medical consent or medical proof. Why not make an opt-out much like Monroe County did, so many of the other Florida districts, why not make an opt-out for parents' choice and see what happens to comply with the rules? Why would that be so bad? We can't put individual parents and personal choice above the risk of lives of all the others that are in the school system. Vilna, it's just like when I put my six-year-old granddaughter, Kyla, and my handsome grandson, who is 17 months, gave into a car. I have to put them in a car seat in a seat belt. Me or their parents don't have a right. We have to look at the good of the whole. And the truth is many people are unvaccinated. We're seeing COVID cases increase daily like never before. The risk and danger of someone dying or being infected in a negative way with COVID and having lifelong complications is greater than ever before. Our positivity rates now are higher than ever before. And we're not gonna play Russian roulette with people's lives. Yeah, Dr. Cartwright, uh, you were formerly the school superintendent in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, a lovely but a smaller community. You've been living in Orlando. I kind of wonder if you might feel like you dropped into another planet. You've come right in in the middle of a really heated debate uh, involving the governor and where your school district is now at odds with the governor and the uh, commissioner of education in the state of Florida. Uh, are you comfortable with your position? I believe that given the statistics that are here within Broward County right now, that our board has definitely um, made a decision with full knowledge of what those statistics are. Uh, frankly speaking, as of Friday, when we're looking at our hospitalization rates uh, here in Broward County for our ICU pediatric unit, as of Friday, they're at 100% bed capacity. Now, not all of those students uh, or children are in there because of COVID reasons. However, it does limit the ability for our hospitals to be able to provide the appropriate services for our students uh, who may need those services. So that is very alarming. Uh, you know, when we sent the when we sent the letter off, it wasn't at 100%. And then here Friday, we get confirmation. Now we're at 100% for our students. Coming from Wisconsin, I was superintendent up there for three years. Um, the, the school districts up there are very different um, as how they're organized than as here in Florida. Um, and so there are multiple, there was over 420 school districts up there, but I was in the 11th largest one in Wisconsin. And even up there, we've been dealing with uh, Wisconsin, uh, you know, COVID related events and, and such. And a lot of this controversy, as you might say, uh, for the past year and a half, yeah. As going all the way from, do you have school virtual? Do you have it hybrid? Do you have it in person? Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? So this is not new for me um, as to these type of conversations that are going on. And previous to that, you're absolutely right. I was in Orlando, I was in Orange County Public Schools for 17 years. So wow. I'm, I'm very comfortable with very large urban districts and the interactions that happen um, with our local legislators, um, as well as uh, our governor, uh, the State Board of Education. Um, and those are experiences that I'm leaning upon right now. I want to pick up on, on a statistic you just gave, the ICU, pediatric ICU beds. We, we actually are going to have a, a, a CMO, Chief Medical Officer for Aventura Hospital later in this program. We're going to talk about that. Um, Dr. Osgood, the governor, one of the governor's arguments is that the pediatric cases, while really 
blossoming with the whole of this surge have percentage-wise have remained the same. In other words, there are no more increase in, in uh, pediatric cases, but the increase is the same percentage, under 2% as it's been from the very beginning of the pandemic. So that's one of his arguments. And the other is that there is really no study about the disadvantages there may be for masking in classroom learning environments, specifically for the younger children learning phonics or learning to speak. Um, is that a valid argument? Is, is there a potential downside for, for learning with masks on all the time? Well, what we know is that there are options to face coverings where parents can use face shields. We saw when we had virtual learning with the students that academics failed drastically. We know that our students need to be back in person, face-to-face -face with their teachers, their peers, in a loving classroom environment. We know with class size being 26 and having potentially one teacher and one ESP or two teachers, 27 or 28 people in a closed space, we cannot practice six feet and three feet of social distancing. So we have to mitigate the risk of people's lives. If we keep our children alive and protected from COVID, then we can teach them. We can continue to work to make sure that they have learning gains. That argument is not a good argument. The American Association of Pediatrics have clearly said to us what the recommendation is about students wearing masks, particularly those under 12 that cannot be vaccinated. We've heard from countless medical professionals all across this nation. We've heard from Dr. Fauci and others. I, Glenna, will not ignore the science. I believe that in this space, in this time of a pandemic, those in the medical profession are the experts and we have to listen to their expertise and their yeah. experience. And to lose one kid, when you say under 1%, 2%, that's too many. For one child to die, one person to die, because we chose not to make mass mandated is unacceptable. And we're just not going to do it. We value lives first. Yeah, if I can, and we have about 20 seconds left in this segment, but uh, uh, Dr. Osgood, why shouldn't all the teachers in Broward County be vaccinated as a requirement? I mean, shouldn't they all be vaccinated when they're in the classroom with kids? We would like for them to, but we don't believe as a local school board legally, we have that authority. We are looking into that. So we don't have authority under our preview to mandate all teachers to be vaccinated, but we have decided to give a $250 incentive to all employees that are vaccinated as our way of doing what we can right now to encourage vaccination. Dr. Osgood, Dr. Cartwright, sit tight. We're gonna take a quick break and we will continue our conversation when we come right back. Welcome back. We are talking with Rosalind Osgood, the chair of the Broward County School Board and Dr. Vicki Cartwright, the new interim superintendent. Dr. Cartwright, let me ask you if there is a lesson to be learned for your school district and indeed, all school districts in the state from what has gone on this week in Palm Beach County. I know you've been following this. School there started Tuesday and by Friday, 1,020 children had been removed from classes, sent home, told to quarantine, 134 students 
26 staff members or 108 students, 26 staff members had tested positive and it seems that is the result of the fact that about 8,000 uh, parents and students opted not to wear masks. All they needed to do that was just a note from a parent, not a note from a doctor. What is there to be learned there for Broward County Public Schools? I think first and foremost, I think the very first lesson is that our board had made the right decision. And again, I'm right there supporting them and making sure uh, that we are aligned and ready to go on our first day of school Wednesday uh, with that mandate in place. Uh, the other thing that I think is also important to recognize is that we're, it's gonna be very important for us to have flexibility and understand that and asking for our parents and, and for our staff members in our community have grace as well. You know, we're not out of the woods on this just yet. There's a lot more coming we know that, but every safety protocol that we can put into place in order to ensure the safety of our students, our staff members in our community, we're going to do. Yeah, uh, a little, a little follow-up yeah. if I may. Bottom line, it seems to be that you are saying, the board is saying, that a child is not going to go to a Broward County classroom wearing a mask and have to sit next to a child unvaccinated uh, who uh, is not wearing a mask. I mean, you're not going to have maskless kids and mask kids in the same class at all. Well, the only exception to that rule are going to be where it is something that is allowable as an accommodation under a student's 504 plan or individualized education plan or possibly a health plan. So those are the only exemptions that are in place there. And But even then, we're looking to what are some other provisions that we can put into place um, related to that masking in order to help control potential spread. So I think that's important. The other thing I think is also important is we're still in, in examining right now what our guidelines are gonna be uh, as to quarantining. There is a difference between those students or those individuals who are vaccinated, those who are not vaccinated, those who are wearing face coverings and those who are not wearing face coverings. Uh, the most recent CDC guidance that came out about students who are masked, vaccinated too, not having to quarantine if they are not symptomatic is a win-win um, to the mask and reduce the number of quarantines. But again, we're under review of those guidance uh, that's been provided by the CDC and by the state um, Department of Health. You know, the, uh, the Florida Department of Education, when those rules came out, we're all focusing on this mask mandate, but there are uh, three rules that came out last week. Uh, Dr. Osgood, one of them was about providing appropriate instruction for those who opt out who are not in classrooms and because we are a live real-time show we have a viewer who actually just emailed us and, and asked about the possibility of virtual school because that's actually a state mandate as well can you talk a little bit about are, are there other components that Broward will be defying and, and is that one of them how how do opt-out students learn well, we're not interpreting it in that way. The governor's executive order for virtual learning uh, or synchronous learning ended. And synchronous learning would be something that we would have to collectively bargain with our union groups. We are looking for, as Dr. Cartwright said, other means of those students that are quarantined, uh, that they're able to still receive instructions. We use a platform that's called Canvas that allows a parent for a student to have access to education 24 hours a day, even when we're not in COVID. I think also it's important to mention the whole part of those rules that talk about 
this new term that the governor and the commission of education created about this COVID harassment that parents who choose to have their students not wear masks, if we put them in a secluded area or we separate them from other students that they can receive a scholarship to go to a private school because now they are suffering COVID harassment. You know, it is just another attempt to take resources from a public school, which is necessary for some students. I represent a predominantly African-American community. The parents can't afford to take their kids out and put them into a private school and pay $20,000, $30,000 of tuition. So you have a public school system that is a necessity to a majority of our students because we are a minority majority county. And when you continue to take resources away from that school system, it really hurts our kids. So I'm hoping that the governor and the commissioner of education will just really search their souls and listen at the people of Broward County and work with us to create safe learning environments with adequate resources for all of our students so that they can succeed uh, academically, achieve academically, and be prepared for their future. Yeah, if, if I could, Dr. Oscar, just a little fact check here. I believe the amount of money that the state would give to the Hope Scholarship kids is around $5,800. The state of Florida is not going to pay $20,000 tuition to Pinecrest or Gulliver or a very fine private school. That just is not in the cards. They don't do that. That's not what I said, Michael. What I said was with the Hope Scholarship, that's not the full tuition. Private school right. tuition starts from around 20000 and some are higher. So with that scholarship, the average student, we 60% of our students are free and reduced lunch students. So with that scholarship, many parents cannot afford to make up the difference to fund the private school tuition. We, 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 it provides them to not have that opportunity. Yeah, point yeah. taken. We, we got it. All right, Dr. Roslyn Osgood, Dr. Vicki Cartwright, great to speak with you this morning. Good luck when classes begin Wednesday. Is it not when your classes resume? Wednesday is the first day of school. Okay, well, have a great first day. Have a great year. Thank you. <laughs> and before we go, may I just give condolences on all our behalfs to you and the families of the three educators who lost their battle with COVID. We are yeah. so sorry to hear that. Thank you. Thank you, Glenda. Thanks again. All right, the vote, the, yeah, there you go. The vote <laughs> to keep mask mandate for the start of classes in Broward was not unanimous. One board member dissented. Lori Aladef is with us live next. The Broward School Board's decision to keep masks mandatory came after a contentious meeting that ended with an 8 to 1 vote in favor. The one member who voted against was Lori Alhadef. She said that she supports the opt-out choice for parents. And board member Alhadef, who lives in Parkland, is joining us right now live. Lori, good morning. Great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lori. Good morning. So take us through your position in favor of the opt-out plan, which your fellow board members voted against. Why do you think it's a good idea? So first, I'd just like to say that I definitely believe that masks help to prevent the spread of COVID. But when I took an oath of office as a school board member, not only did I agree to follow the Florida Constitution, 
but also to follow all the laws in Florida. And based on the executive order and the information that came out from the Department of Health and the state school board, they put in place rules which says that we need to offer masks with parents having the option to opt out. And also, given the guidance from our general counsel, was that they that she said, Miss Batista said that we should comply with the law. You know, the school board could have voted yes and agreed on the on the plan and the rules set forth by the state, followed the law, and then they could have moved forward and filed legal action to to fight it. All right, let me let me ask you something about what you just said. So your district legal counsel had advised to comply with the law as it stands, and then the letter that went to the Department of Education in response um, from the superintendent and the board chair that we, with whom we just spoke, made a case for that the plan is in compliance because there's an opt-out, even though the opt-out needs medical note, which actually is, is not part of the rule. So what you're saying, just so we, we hear you, is that the district is going against its own counsel? Correct. The school board members went against the advice from our general counsel. But can I also just say on the, the medical note part, in our policy, it clearly says that you have to get a doctor's note if you have a current 504 plan or an IEP, and then you can get the doctor's note to be able to opt out. So it's just not this blanket health, you know, if you have a health issue. You have to have a current 504 IEP. Got it. Yeah, Laurie, just briefly explain to us what is a 504 plan? Sure. So it's basically like if a student has some type of special needs that they are able to have all those needs, like say, for example, they might be able, um, need to be able at any time go to the bathroom. That would be in their 504 plan. Maybe I they see. need extra time. Special needs. That would be correct Yeah, I in their you. 504 plan. Yeah. You know, uh, Lori, uh, Governor DeSantis has made it very clear over and over again that for him, the issue here is really parental choice not having government dictate something this important. You know, I would simply point out, as I'm sure you've heard others, that for children to attend public schools in Florida, they have to have shots for measles and chicken pox, all kinds of things. So if it were analogous, you have surrendered your liberty to get those vaccinations, but you will not surrender your liberty to get a vaccination for a terrible coronavirus. What, where's the consistency there? I, I agree with you. I mean, right now it is parent choice whether to vaccinate. Uh, about two weeks ago, ages 12 to 18, the vaccination rate for Broward County uh, was only 21%. I'm sure that number has gone up by now, but unfortunately parents are not getting their students vaccinated if they can, if they're 12 years or older and it is the most effective way to help to prevent the spread of COVID. And if you get COVID, you're not gonna get as sick if you are vaccinated. Um, so I, I would, you know, if, if this is one of the ways that we are going to be able to keep our students in school and have in-person learning, which I totally agree that we need to do, 
people need to get their students vaccinated if they're in that age category. So as this has unfolded during the week, here we are three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, three days from the start of school, um, the, the, the wheels are rolling. Have you had any kind of survey, either scientific or anecdotal? Can you, do you have a sense of how many parents will be opting out of this mandate, whether it is with a, a note from, you know, in a medical note, or whether it's to take a voucher and leave, or, or whether it's just to do something else? What are those numbers like that you're hearing? Um, we don't have numbers like that right now, but I have been just hearing as a school board member and as a parent, there are people leaving the school district, unfortunately. There are people getting their doctor's note if they have a 504 plan or IEP. Um, but the majority of students will be in compliance and will definitely be wearing a mask. So what is then, even if it's a, a small number, what is the district's plan to accommodate these these kinds of students mm -hmm. um, with three days to go to, to make that plan? Can you clarify your question? Well, there's, there is this possible opt-out in place. You, you aren't sure of the numbers. There's no way to know at this point, I suppose, who will be doing that. So what's the plan that the district has on Wednesday when you find even a small amount of opt-outs? No. Those, those kids have to be educated. What's the plan for them? They will be going to school like every other child. They uh, deserve to go to school and not to be discriminated against in any way whatsoever. And there will be some students that will be not wearing a mask, but most students will be wearing masks. So is there a, another classroom, another yeah. teacher, a virtual something? No, no, absolutely not. They will be with every other, you know, in the regular classroom, and they will not be in any way put into a special room or discriminated against. They will be with all of their peers in their classroom. Yeah. You know, I would simply point out, without knowing cause and effect here, that's what they did in Palm Beach County this week, and they wound up with 1,020 kids being quarantined because they, they didn't necessarily test positive, but they had ex been exposed to people with COVID. Aren't you running the risk in Broward County, you know, if you have kids, whether they have a medical note or not, who are sitting next to kids who haven't been vaccinated and are not wearing masks? So the reality of the fact is there is going to be an abundance of kids that will have COVID and will come into schools on Wednesday and will be spreading COVID. But what I want to point out as per our, our face covering policy is that during lunch, students can unmask. When they go outside and they're on the playground, they right. can unmask. If they're doing strenuous exercise, they can unmask. So my point is, COVID just doesn't stop because you're eating lunch, it unfortunately will be spreading at other times too, even in accordance with our mask mandate policy. Sure. So Lori Aladef, as always, we appreciate your time. The nation is watching what happens in Broward County this week. And so will we be. Lori, thank you so much. Great to see you. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. All right, next, South Florida hospitals had the most COVID admissions than anywhere in the country this week. We were number one and a few from the front lines when we, a view from the front lines when we come back.
This week, Broward County became the nation's epicenter of hospital admissions for COVID, a grim distinction. Miami-Dade is running third. South Florida hospitals generally report resources holding staffing is the more pressing concern. Aventura Hospital is right there in the northeast corner of Miami-Dade at the county line with Broward. Dr. Trish Stevens is the chief medical officer there and joins us live. Dr. Stevens, great to have you with us. Welcome, Dr. Thank Stevens. Thank you for having me. Uh, give us a report, if you would. I, as it happens, I'm in Chura Hospital. It's my neighborhood hospital. I've been there. I know you do good, good work there. Give us the, the report on COVID patients today. Are you jammed? Are you busy? Or do you have space? The entire south of Miami and Broward Day Market, as you know, experienced a surge in COVID admission and that impact the entire operations of all the hospital in the surrounding community. So Aventura Hospital experienced the same surge in impact that the rest of the hospital have experienced. We have a large number of COVID patients admitted to our hospital and the impact is mostly felt with the ICU admission, which has upticked to 2% this past week. Same with patient needing ventilation support. Dr. Stevens, the rest of our program, not sure if you were able to hear, but we've been talking to the Broward uh, Superintendent of Schools and a couple of the board members uh, during that conversation. They reiterated what we learned on Friday that um, in Broward County, the pediatric, pediatric ICU beds are full, 100% full. I guess my question to you is put that into context. Uh, COVID, non-COVID, any, any more of a percentage of pediatric cases that you're seeing besides the norm of the pandemic? And what does that mean for the upcoming school year? Nationally, there is a 4% increase in COVID ICU and also for pediatric, 4% increase in pediatric needing positive ventilation support that go from bypass to full intubations. So it is causing a huge impact and this impact was not felt by the regular strain. The Delta variant is what's responsible for this, uh, for this impact on uh, children that we see right now with the surge nationally and especially the epicenter at Broward County, Miami-Dade in South Florida. The um, landscape seemed to be gravitating toward human beings who are not vaccinated and for those unfortunately unable to vaccinate because they're below 12 years old. We've heard that from the very beginning of this surge from all over South Florida and the country, and I think what we've been hearing, hospitals that we've had with us as guests reporting anywhere between 95% to 98% unvaccinated patients. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're seeing in Aventura? Yes, uh, that is what we're seeing. And also there's a difference between testing positive and hospitalization. For testing positive, you see about 95% of people who test positive are unvaccinated. For hospitalization, you see 99% of hospitalized patients are unvaccinated. And the one in ICU, they are fully unvaccinated 100%. And here's a statistic that everybody should know. The positivity rates for testing is 20% ongoing for three weeks now. Of those wow. that being hospitalized, 25% of them end up in ICU and 13% of them do not make it out of the ICU. So the impact is, is, is huge and that's a huge loss to the community if you should get COVID and, and up in the hospital and the ICU. The message out there is vaccinations really shift the landscape of the pandemic even prior to the Delta variant 
and it is even more impactful now with the Delta variant. Yes, we do see breakthrough infections. However, if you do get infected and you've been vaccinated, your chance of getting in the hospital is very slim. The Pfizer vaccine uh, research has proven to be 80% effective against the Delta variant, so it saved lives. The urge out there is if you are qualified to be vaccinated, please do get vaccinated. Yeah, Dr. Stevens, let me ask you about your staff. We have talked over the last several months to physicians, you know, all over South Florida, hospital administrators, and we have heard time and again, our staff is burned out. Uh, the emotional toll of dealing with death and with this terrible illness is just, you know, awful. Uh, what about your staff? What do you do to help them try to get through the psychic trauma of dealing with death and with people who are so sick? Thank you for asking the question that is at the forefront of our mind as well, along with the physician, the nursing staff. Um, this strain is acutely felt in the frontline workers. This is the fourth way now of COVID. HCA, uh, thankfully, have provide free access to unlimited phone support. It's 24 seven and 365 via nurse care. When you do uh, call the phone, you get, um, the advice from psychologist, social worker, um, also there's marriage and family counseling because it does bleed into your family life and your social life. We also have programming for access to free face-to-face -face counseling. East Florida particularly have been well supported to take care of our staff emotional needs. Along this crisis, we have a director of pastoral care, Father Gabriel Gamnoon, who's a PhD in psychology, he has been rounding on the wards and the frontline uh, worker in the ICU and in the COVID cohort units throughout East Florida. And um, several meetings have been have been had in terms of blessing our workers and supporting them emotionally to get through the uh, the crisis here with the fourth wave of the pandemic, the Delta variant. We also have the nurse care line, and we also have employee assistance program that is free to all the staff and the employee who work for HCA. Uh, we do town hall weekly and we have daily huddle, COVID hurdle with the emotional support for our staff. Uh, we we care so much for our healthcare worker. We also care for the community, but this is a crisis. This is the pandemic that will take both healthcare worker and community coming together to support each other and to put an end to this. And again, we can't emphasize enough the importance of getting yourself vaccinated, you owe it to the community. And if you get vaccinated, you limit the spread to your loved ones in your community and you owe it to the human race to do so. It's you not are. just your personal well-being. It yeah. is the human race at stake here in South Florida in particular, especially for those who cannot be humanized because they're less than 12 year old or those who have sensitivity to the vaccine themselves. Yeah, Dr. Stevens, you are echoing what we have heard for months. Let me ask you about this. Uh, we are on that incline of the surge that by all accounts from the medical community, we're hearing an expectation that it will peak around August 23rd. Um, is that what you're hearing? And do you and your uh, company and your industry have enough resources, enough staffing, enough supplies to get South Florida through that and over that peak? 
Thank you for that question. It's a great question. So yes, the uh, pandemic situation is very fluid. Uh, it was first predicted the 29th. Now the latest prediction is the 23rd. The testing positivity has gone down around 1%. The hospitalization has gone down about 1%. However, with COVID, the hospitalization is very prolonged. So we, while we're seeing the decrease in hospitalization, we see an uptick in ICU admissions and patient needing ventilator care. It is, it is an honor to work with HCA since they are nationally and the supply chain is nationally mobilized. We experienced a hundred over a hundred capacity in ICU the past couple of weeks, and with HCA resource nationally, we were able to siphon and able to mobilize our resource nationally and uh, and make up for those surges that we see in South Florida. So HCA at this uh, juncture is poised to take care of all the patients in South Florida, uh, spending from PPEs, ventilations, medications, and staffing. We do mobilize staff nationally to, to go to these areas such as ourselves to take care of, of, of the patients and also to relieve the staff that is now tired from the fourth wave of, of Delta variant. Dr. Trish Stevens, it is great information. Great to have you. I know we know you are so busy these days and to take time for us, we are grateful for that. Thanks very much. All right, up next, tragedy in Haiti. Hundreds of people are dead there and others are missing after the big earthquake on Saturday. This is very much local news in South Florida. We speak to a local community leader next. Just when you thought that things couldn't get any worse in Haiti, they have. The country was rocked by a major earthquake yesterday morning. This time in the southwestern part of the country, the Haitian government is reporting 304 deaths and nearly 2,000 injuries. But that update was yesterday. Hundreds more people remain missing. Those numbers sure to go up. This is local news in South Florida and the community with family and business ties there. Marlene Bastien is one, the executive director of the Family Action Network Movement, longtime social service organization in Miami. And Marlene, one of our go-to people for all things about Haiti. Great to see you today on, and I'm so sorry it's under these circumstances. Yeah, Marlene, condolences for your friends, family, uh, and for the country of Haiti to go through this. I mean kind of feel like can't catch a break in Haiti. It's one thing after another. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Lena and then Michael. Yes, uh, just when we thought that things could not get worse, and it did. Yesterday, Haitians in Haiti, in the diaspora, and throughout the world heard the news. The 7.2 magnitude earthquake hit the South Peninsula killing over 300 people. And uh, it is expected that more uh, will be, will be uh, killed. Thousands uh, have been reported missing. Uh, most of the uh, South Peninsula's infrastructure, including churches, schools, hospitals, uh, have been destroyed and people are just in shock and in disarray. You know, Mar Marlene, I think everybody in the past 24 hours was making comparisons to the 2010 earthquake, uh, thinking about that. But, but I want to please do put in context for us that this particular region far west of the capital where the 2010 earthquake hit, this, this region is really still struggling after 
Hurricane Matthew, which was in 2016. So, so there is some real issue there with even before yesterday with this, the infrastructure. Uh, and so now this is just devastating. Indeed, I was uh, in the South Peninsula, in Lake Kai, and surrounding areas after Hurricane Matthew uh, to do a fact-finding mission. And uh, in 2000, October 4th, 2016, where most of the infrastructure you know, was uh, destroyed and it has not been rebuilt. And uh, to, to, to have uh, this area um, you know, hit again uh, is very concerning, especially when we know that in, in addition to that, Haiti has still uh, not recovered from the 2010 earthquake, from the uh, imported uh, cholera epidemic, of, and then now, uh, most recently, the, the political uh, situation right. with the assassination of the president. So things are, are, are continue to, to, to worsen. And at this, by, at this time, uh, the hospital Bonfin uh, is uh, basically out of capacity. People are being treated uh, in grassy areas. And then added to that, uh, the, the roads that leads from the South Peninsula to Port-au-Prince, yeah, most blocked. of the hospital, yeah. Uh, are, uh, are, are inaccessible because of gang activities. Yeah. Uh, Marlene, uh, as we all know, Haiti doesn't have a president right now. President Moise was assassinated. Uh, the prime minister, who is a neurosurgeon, uh, is a, seems like a competent man. We've seen pictures of him on the scene uh, at the earthquake uh, epicenter. Uh, directing the recovery. Do you have some confidence that Prime Minister Henry is 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 capable here? Is going to do uh, a good job? Well, we know uh, that in order for Haiti to recover, it will take a lot of uh, organization, a lot, a lot of strategic planning, uh, a lot of uh, the groups, the civil societies, all the institutions working together. So hopefully, hopefully. Uh, we, they will be able to sit down together to develop a strategy because no matter how competent the prime minister is, and then again, there are questions about his uh, uh, legality. So it, it is really uh, uh, difficult. Uh, no matter how competent he is, he will need uh, the support of the civil society. He will need the support of all uh, the institutions and to, to, to really uh, help Haiti recover. And this is one of those, th I think people are looking at this and saying, you know, Haiti did not build back better. What has to happen for, for a, a progress, for going forward at this point and building back better for the safety and health and prosperity of the country? Unfortunately, after the 2010 earthquake, most of the resources that, that really uh, uh, were sent there, you know, uh, were not used properly. A lot of these uh, uh, resources were diverted. And um, instead of uh, dealing with the state of Haiti directly, they were dealing with uh, other organ nonprofit organizations. And then most of the money, you know, most of the resources were coming back. A lot of, you know, consulting uh, agencies, a lot of consultants. So I think you know, what needs to happen, uh, Glenda and, 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 and Michael, is that it is important for Haiti to have a strategic plan, right? To have a strategic plan and to work with organizations that are rooted, that yeah. have a history. Mar Marlene, I, I beg your pardon. We, we are out of time. We're so grateful you joined us this morning, and we know you will be helping, you know, the di diaspora reach out to the people of Haiti and 
Local 10 News will try to be a partner in that. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thank Marlene. Marlene. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. As always, we are grateful you spent this hour with us on This Week in South Florida. Remember, we're online 24-7 at Local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday.